Right. Good evening, um, everyone. My name's um, Shami Chakrabarti, and um, otherwise known as the Grim Reaper, um, because generally speaking, when you see me everywhere, you know that something pretty bloody awful's just happened. But not tonight, despite the, <laughs> despite the, uh, the, the title of this important lecture, and despite the fact that I'm told a few minutes ago the, the sign behind us read, what did it read, terrorism and how to do it, or... <laughs> Um, but that's not what we're here to, 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 to talk about. It's a, it's a great pleasure, um, both as the Director of Liberty and as a Governor of DLSE, to be here to chair this important event and to introduce what I think is going to be an incredibly important book on such uh, a, a vital issue. Um, Richard English, as many of you will know, because you've come to hear him, is the Professor of Politics at Queen's University Belfast and an expert in the field of, uh, of anti-terror responses, award-winning author of previous books, Armed Struggle, The History of the IRA, and Irish Freedom, The History of Nationalism in Ireland. A frequent media commentator. I, I do like frequent media commentators. <laughs> um, on, on terrorism and political violence, including a lot of work for the BBC, the Times Literary Supplement, the Irish Times, Newsweek, the Independent on Sunday, and the Financial Times, and he's lectured widely on this subject in Europe and America. He's also, I'm told, a fellow of the British Academy and a member of the Royal Irish Academy. So, as I'm sure you'll all agree, um, a very much an expert on the subject, a perfect person to have written this book and to introduce it to all of us this evening. Now, the format of the evening is as follows. Richard's going to, to introduce his work, speak about his book for about 30 or 40 minutes. After that, we will open up to, um, to audience questions and points and brief contributions. I won't insist that every comment has a question mark or an inflection at the end, but, but if they are contributions, we'll keep them as pithy as possible so that as many of people here and up there can contribute. And then at around 7.45, we will have uh, a book signing. And Richard has said he's very happy to, um, to, for those of you who'd like to have your book signed, to, to come up on the, on the side there and, uh, 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 and get him to inscribe your books. Um, so without further ado, I'd like you to help me welcome the author. And, uh, and let's all welcome, please, Richard English. Thank you very much indeed, Shami, for that extremely generous introduction, and thank you to the LSE for inviting me to speak about my book. One of my sardonic friends in Belfast said on Saturday that uh, he noticed I'd written a how-to book about terrorism, uh, but that I'd written the wrong one, and the title should have been Terrorism, How to Do It, rather than Terrorism, How to Respond. So if there was a shift by the publisher on this, it obviously indicates what my next book uh, should, should be about. There's a profound paradox about post-9-11 politics, which is this, that despite the war on terror, easily the most expensive, extensive, expansive, ambitious attempt in human history to try to get rid of terrorism as a problem. The problem of terrorism has not only not gone away, but in some significant ways has during those years got worse. The average monthly death toll from terrorism in the years immediately preceding 9-11 was 109 deaths per month. In the five years subsequent to the 9-11 atrocity, 
the years of the introduction of the war on terror. That monthly death toll rose from 109 a month to 167 a month, excluding attacks in Afghanistan and Iraq. If you include attacks in Afghanistan and Iraq during those years, the figure rose from 109 deaths a month to 447 deaths a month. If you look at terrorist incidents rather than merely ones involving fatalities, a similar picture emerges. If you look at the figures from the Memorial Institute for the Prevention of Terrorism, 1,732 recorded incidents in 2001, the year of the 9-11 atrocities. Five years later, in 2006, the figure had risen from 1,732 to 6,659. Now, my argument about what has happened during those years, and in some ways the motivation for writing this, this book on terrorism, was that it seems to me that what has happened during the years since 9-11 is a version of something which we've repeatedly seen through human history and politics, and which, you know, despite books like this, is going to continue to happen, I fear, in the future, which is that states respond to these crises in a mode of amnesia that in fact they don't learn the lessons from the past and in the words of a great philosopher on the subject don't learn the known knowns that we actually do know about this subject uh, and therefore make repeated versions of the same mistakes again albeit in different and this time more dangerous contexts. The book is therefore a book which is based on the assumption that history in a Burkean mode, history is a necessary basis for current and future political response. And it's also based on another assumption, too. Uh, there are a vast number of books post-9-11, books and articles published on the subject of terrorism. One recent author has estimated that, on average, in the English language, a book on terrorism is published about once every six hours, which is a very depressing fact if you've just, <laughs> if you've just bothered to write one yourself. But, <laughs> but most of the things that are written since 9-11 on the subject of terrorism are written both without the kind of attention to history that I'm advocating. In other words, they're often written as though history began in about 1980, if not in 2001 itself. And they're also, I think, significantly books and articles very often written about terrorists without the authors ever having bothered to go and actually meet one. I hope that this book, for all of its many flaws, is, is one which involves both the benefits drawn on first-hand field research in relation to the Irish case, which is that which I know best, and one which is also based on the assumption that uh, if we are going to try and respond to terrorism more effectively in the future, we need to have a more historically-minded attitude and stance. So the book is based on the, I think, unarguable view that if we're going to respond effectively to terrorism, we need to learn the lessons of history. If we're going to learn the lessons of history, we need effectively to be able to explain why terrorism emerges is sustained and on occasions dies out in particular cases. And if we're going to have that kind of explanation, we need an honest, plausible, credible definition of what it is that terrorism means. So the book is based on four concatenated links in a sequence of argument. The problem of definition, the problem of explanation, the problem of history, and the problem of response. Now tonight, you'll be glad to hear I'm not going to try and deal with all of those in my 30, 40 minutes, but what I'm going to do is try and, at the risk of telling you the answer and therefore meaning you don't have to buy and read the book, I'm going to cut to the, the final bit in terms of terrorism and how to respond and try to give what Samuel Beckett would have referred to as an expurgated, accelerated, improved and reduced version of the final bit of the book and answer one central question. And the question is this, what does history tell us about how we should respond to terrorism? What does history tell us about how we should respond to terrorism. This is a book which I intend to be aimed at people who are discussing it in 
lecture theatres like this and in seminars and in scholarly journals. But it's also a book which is aimed very much at a more public and practical audience as well. And I think that, therefore, the response question is one which is, I hope, of some kind of real-world value. And I argue that there are basically seven points about how we should respond to terrorism, and I'll rattle through them, and then you can ask questions and make points, and I look forward very much to that. First point, learn to live with it. Learn to live with it. One of the depressing lessons from the history of terrorism is that it's always likely to be with us, and it will certainly outlive everyone in this room tonight. In October 1985, a group of Palestinians hijacked an Italian cruise liner, famously the Achille Lauro, as it left Alexandria in Egypt with hundreds of people on board. The hijackers called for the release of Palestinian prisoners held in Israel and Italy and threatened to kill U.S. passengers on the ship if Egyptian radio and television failed to broadcast their demands. Their leader declared that the first to pay with their lives would be the American hostages, and indeed an American was killed, Leon Klinghoffer during this bloody episode. Early in the first act of John Adams' opera based on these events, The Death of Klinghoffer, uh, I think it's unlikely John Adams is here tonight, so I can say I don't actually like the opera, but it does have a great quotation which I'm now going to use. Early in the first act of the opera, when it's discovered that the terrorists have taken over the ship, one of the characters sings repetitively, with terrorists on board the ship, with terrorists on board the ship. And given the durability of the problem we face, I think this is in some ways a nice motto for our times and those in the future. We have terrorists on board. And here the UK's lengthy experience, um, I'm going, when I'm using examples I won't purely use Irish examples but for purposes of first-hand vividness and try and bring something distinctive as someone who lives and works in Belfast, I'll use more Irish examples than uh, the size of the conflict there would perhaps merit. But uh, uh, the UK's experience more broadly but particularly perhaps with Ireland here tells a tale. If you look at the Irish case in terms of the UK's dealing with the terrorist problem. There is the very long prehistory of anti-state violence which preceded the provisional IRA on whom, as, as Shami kindly said, I, I wrote a book some years ago. There's then the very long history of the provisional IRA itself, a campaign which began in 1969 and formally ended in 2005. After they finished, there has been ongoing violence, loyalist and dissident Republican, as we know, even with fatalities this year in Northern Ireland. And even if you could say that the Northern Irish problem in terms of its political violence were completely finished and over for good, in the very month when the IRA declared that their campaign was finally over, as if God were intervening in history to make the point, in the very month that the IRA said it's over, July 2005, the 7-7 atrocities brought a different kind of terrorist threat to London. Particular terrorist campaigns end, terrorism does not. Now in this sense, I think that the war on terror as it was actually set out, is only partly appropriate. I don't think actually, I'm not one of those who thinks that a war on terror is necessarily incoherent in itself. I, mean, I argue in the book that terrorism is a subspecies of warfare, and I think in some ways the response to it might be cast in those terms too. I do think that the particular way in which the war on terror was adumbrated by the then President of the United States was probably counterproductive and certainly misleading. Our war on terror begins with Al-Qaeda, but it does not end there. It will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped, and defeated. That is not a realizable objective. And as we do learn to live with it, I think if there's a positive spin on this depressing first point, it is this, that we can take some comfort from history in this sense, that individual terrorist campaigns themselves do tend to fizzle. That in most cases that I have studied, the central terrorist goals are most often not achieved, though, sh 
there's a sharp debate on whether this is true, which we might return to. But I think the central objectives of most terrorist groups that I've studied are not achieved at the time of the ending of their campaign. And also that the history of terrorism points often enough towards the durability rather than the destruction of the states which are under terrorist attack. We may require extraordinary patience in dealing with terrorism, but we can do, some with, can do so with, I think, some confidence that states endure and often have done so quite resiliently. Now, while terrorism, as I say, will always be with us, particular terrorist campaigns will usually come to an end. And this leads to the second broad point learned from history about practical response, which is this. Where possible, address underlying root problems and causes. Where possible, address underlying root causes and problems. The fact that most terrorism is, as I would argue, generated by profound political problems, whether of legitimacy, of nationalist or communal disaffection, or of various other kinds of, I think, seriously interwoven causes which are serious political problems requiring to be addressed. That terrorism is generated by those kinds of problems does not, in my view, necessarily legitimize any of its violence. Nor is it, I think, the case, as terrorist groups tend themselves to argue, that their violence is necessitated by the fact that it's the only way in which they can express their cause or further their ambitions. I don't think that's as often the case as is put forward by groups legitimating their violence themselves. But the fact that these are the real underlying roots of the violence which is its symptom, does explain the violence and point to the vital lessons that the best ultimate way of containing and ultimately removing the terrorist symptom is to address the terrorist source where this is feasible. Now, where this is feasible is a very important qualification in two senses. One, because there are some issues which I think it's very difficult to see a resolution being reached in. I mean, I think there are, I'm not positive about the prospects in some of the conflicts which generate terrorist violence. But also, I would argue that even where it is the case that there is a realizable end point to violence by, under, by addressing the underlying causes, it's not something which is openly available to you at any given, any given point. That there seem to me to be long periods when it isn't possible and then significant shift when it might be. But there are some who argue very differently from this. I mean, most famously, I think, the Harvard professor Alan Dershowitz, who argued that attempting to address root causes of terrorism indicates that the tactic has greater efficacy and indeed strengthens it. In Dershowitz's words, we must take precisely the opposite approach to terrorism. He continues, we must commit ourselves never to try to understand or eliminate its alleged root causes, but rather to place it beyond the pale of dialogue and negotiation. Now, I think it's certainly the case that to demonstrate the efficacy of terrorism would be to encourage its future adoption, and clearly I'm not advocating that, uh, despite my temptation to write a how-to book in the future. For this book, I'm certainly not advocating that. What I would say is that I think in some cases, and here I will use the Irish example, Dershowitz is demonstrably wrong in this sense, that engaging with the root causes at the heart of a problem in the Northern Irish case was entirely consistent with holding the view that terrorist violence, particularly that of the main protagonist, the provisional IRA, was ineffective in addressing those causes. And if you look closely at the Northern Irish case, I think this is borne out. Negotiations in the 1990s towards the Northern Ireland peace process became meaningful and sustained after the leadership of the IRA had recognized that the violence that they had thought would bring victory was not bringing that victory and had moved to the position that an alternative mechanism was necessary to achieve political momentum. 
And significantly in the Irish case, it's only since the IRA ended their armed campaign of violence and terrorism that their political party, Sinn Féin, has become the dominant party of the North in Ireland. But even in the far less auspicious global jihadi case, it's clear that levels of support are contingent upon perceived Western policies involving Israel-Palestine, famously, Iraq and Afghanistan, contemporaneously, and that careful political initiative could help at least to restrict the breadth of jihadist support and recruitment. If, as I argue in the book, terrorists and their sympathizers throughout history are no less rational, practical, and normal than others, uh, the way I normally put this is to say that in all of the many interviews I did with people in the IRA who'd been involved in terrorist violence in Northern Ireland, during all of those interviews with very many people, there was no higher a proportion of psychopaths in that group than there is amongst my colleagues in the department at the university. Now, <clears throat> I realize that might be because I, I, I work in a strange department, but that's not the point I'm trying to make. Okay. Um, it, 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 I think there is a, the body of literature on the psychology of terrorism is emphatic on this point, that it's the, it's the normality of people engaged that is striking. That being the case, then we can use this to advantage by demonstrating that nonviolent methods in some cases will undoubtedly yield more fruitful results and greater potential for leverage over opponents. One of the most common words in interviews I did with people who'd been involved in the IRA was momentum. In other words, a pursuit of momentum in their struggle. And they genuinely did think that in the early years of their violence, it would come quickly. In the early 1970s, each year was proclaimed the year of victory. They then moved to a longer struggle, which would take longer to achieve the same goal. And then by, I dated around 1989, reached the view that this was not what was happening and shifted politically as a consequence. I think it's also a very important point in terms of addressing root causes and problems to address the right root causes and problems. And I think here there are some spectacular misconceptions which still prevail even yet in 2009, which I think we need to at the very least interrogate, but I would argue try to undermine. For example, it's in this very lecture theatre some years ago, Princeton economist Alan Kruger argued that his statistical analysis of the correlation between, for example, poverty and terrorists generation of terrorism or, or, or lack of education and the generation of terrorism was very weak indeed. In other words, the often bandied about notion that if you combat poverty and lack of education, you'll deal with the terrorist problem seems to be not borne out by serious research. Now, there are perfectly good reasons for dealing with the lack of education and dealing with poverty in themselves, but not if you're thinking that that's going to end terrorism. Addressing root problems necessitates honest precision about what those problems are, and that may involve some profound rethinking. So if our first two responses should be learn to live with it and, where possible, address underlying root problems and causes, then the third must be avoid the over-militarization of response. Avoid the over-militarization of response. It's not, I think, that military dimensions of response should be altogether absent as we deal with terrorism. But I argue in the book that a primarily military response to the terrorist problem will almost certainly exacerbate our difficulties. And it's frequently been the case that even very strong formal military power can be lastingly thwarted by terrorist opponents. The reasons for this are well known, and I needn't dwell on them. The dangers of massive military response have been made clear in terms of the damage of what's euphemistically referred to as collateral damage in terms of losing key populations. I mean, what I give talks sometimes at conferences in the United States where there's a 
sort of footnoted military presence there. And uh, there was a conference some years ago where someone kept referring in their talk uh, to, to kinetic methods. And someone put their hand up and said, can you tell us what kinetic methods are? I said, uh, yeah, kicking down doors and shooting people. Okay, the use of kinetic methods has certain value in certain circumstances, but it undoubtedly has difficulties in others in terms of losing certain key <coughs> populations who are variables of some significance. It also makes necessary compromise more difficult to attain. And I think one of the key lessons in terms of why we ex how we explain the rise in terrorist violence in particular cases is the rather banal one of a tit-for-tat escalation of violence whereby people engage in horrific acts because horrific acts have been done to people like them by the other community and therefore what seemed hideous becomes justifiable. I mean, the words of one of my, if you'll forgive an expletive, in the words of one of my IRA interviewees, one of my IRA interviewees who was talking about his change in view between 1968 and 1972, by the latter year he having joined the IRA, he said in 1968 if someone had asked him to plant a bomb, he'd have told them to fuck off, as he put it. Uh, but some years later, his own community having suffered things like internment, Bloody Sunday, friction with the British Army, he was queuing up to do it for free. Now, sharper-sided terrorist groups have frequently recognized the great value to their cause of provoking states into counterproductive militarization, with the spectacular backfiring of such policies often, have, often having had a long-term effect. And in particular, things which can be cast as illegitimate military foreign occupation seem to be key decisive variables in stimulating and sustaining rather than getting rid of terrorist violence. Two points here which I'll finally mention before moving on to the, to the next point. One is that the pendulum has begun to swing in the American literature on this in recent years for, I think, obvious reasons in terms of what's happened in Afghanistan and Iraq. So if you read stuff like Seth Jones' Counterinsurgency in Afghanistan, the emphasis on the importance of the indigenous police force in Afghanistan and in the building up of intelligence and so on, rather than relying on formal military muscle, is quite striking and strikingly different from what people in his position were arguing in 2000. And one and 2002. Second thing is that there is, and we may come to this in the questions, there is obviously a counterexample, which is to adopt what might be called the Sri Lankan model, which is to say that actually using significant force can crush movements, and I think that's an important argument. My point there would be twofold. I mean, you can, if you're talking about non state terrorism, you can dodge the Sri Lankan thing by saying it was really uh, a civil war rather than terrorism, but I'm not going to do that. I think I want to uh, avoid that easy loophole. Um, what I would say is that in my book, I argue that. If terrorism is defined as the use of terrorizing violence for political ends, then clearly while this book and my talk tonight are about non-state groups, terrorism is something which is clearly and through much of history done, in fact, on much larger scale by states as well, and it's important to recognize that. Now, you could argue that the crushing of non-state terrorism, in the case of the Sri Lankan example recently, in the case of Uruguay uh, much earlier, is something which is effective. On the other hand, if, if your aim... If, if your aim, as in my case, is to minimize human suffering and minimize terrorism rather than to see the victory of a particular state, then using large-scale, very bloody, terrorizing political violence to get rid of terrorism seems to me to be a contradiction and one that is at odds with the kind of policy that I would say we should be advocating. But we might discuss that later. As I say, I'm not suggesting that military force is of no use. At times, it clearly is. Where military involvement is most valuable, it tends not merely to reflect high-quality training and professionalism as well as, I think, considerable restraint, but also the acquisition and use of detailed, local, accurate intelligence. This leads to our fourth important historical lesson in terms of how to respond to the terrorist problem, and it's this. Te intelligence is the most vital element in successful counterterrorism. Intelligence is the most vital element in successful 
counterterrorism. If you look at the literature on terrorism, as many of you will have done, you'll see that this is stressed by experts with a variety of disciplinary backgrounds, political orientations, and eras of emphasis and regional variation of scrutiny and expertise. Sustained human assets, agents and informers who acquire superior intelligence about one's enemy are vital if one is to possess the necessary understanding of the terrorist opponent. Precisely who and where are the people involved in terrorism in your case? What is actually stimulating and what might undermine their reservoirs of recruits and sympathizers? What are they currently planning and when and how to stop it? What are their strengths and weaknesses, their divisions and potential fissures? What is their position in terms of finances and weapons? And what are the conditions under which they might consider political compromise and the ending of a campaign? Investment in the process of acquiring such intelligence is arguably the crucial foundation upon which other interlinked aspects of response can then be built. Put another way, without such high-quality intelligence, it's likely that all aspects of state response, whether legal or propagandist or military, will stumble ineffectively. And I think history teaches this, and give a couple of brief examples, negatively and, and, and positively. I mean, the positive one is obviously the fact that within Northern Ireland there was a profound shift away from uh, the parachute regiment to using intelligence. I mean, both people from Special Branch and people from the IRA told me that by the end of the IRA's campaign, most planned IRA actions were not happening, and a significant reason for that was prior intelligence and the interception, you know, the apparently accidental interception of an army land rover at the key moment or a change of tactic. And there's some evidence the United States is now recognizing this more drastically than it once did. But significantly, and here's the negative point, both before and after the 9-11 atrocity, it's clear that there were profound intelligence failures which had disastrous consequences and that these have significantly contributed to America's current terrorist <laughs> problem. U.S. unpreparedness for 9-11 arose partly from inadequate security coordination. There was a failure to understand and interpret the massive data which was in the authorities' possession. Pre-9-11, U.S. monitoring of what was happening in Afghanistan was famously weak. Around 1996, there was virtually no Western intelligence presence in Afghanistan, and therefore al-Qaeda's reorganization, training, and growth there were able to flourish unmonitored. And after 2001, in the build-up to the Iraq War, again, very famously, intelligence failures have become significant. The difficulty here is that by the time it's now moved to the point where the U.S. undoubtedly recognizes the point that I'm saying, there's no contentiousness in this, and I've talked to people who advise betrayers, they say, yeah, we know this. But by the time you recognize this in this cycle, the problem you're dealing with is a different one and a worse one, and that's what happens. Okay, same in Northern Ireland. By the time you get to realizing in the 19, late 1980s, early 1990s, intelligence is really what you need, you've got a much bigger problem than you had at the time when you didn't realize that when you were using the parachute regiment. Okay, and this cycle is regressively predictable. It's a murky world that you're involved in, and particularly with Shami Chakrabarti sitting here, I think I should say that I'm not advocating the transgression of various different proper legal norms in gathering of intelligence. But within the rules of play, there are lots of things you can do. Even that involves various unpleasantness morally in terms of turning people and compromised people who you therefore rely on as agents. But I think you are there in the Machiavellian choice of lesser evils. I mean, if the, choice, if the choice is between saying we know that this person has something murky in their private life which would cause them grief in their own community and we use that to make them give evidence about a bombing which means that because it won't happen people will be alive who would then be dead. I know which moral choice I'd take and I think most people would take that choice also. 
Um, it also is something with a very, very long history. One of the books I always say that my students who study terrorism should read is G.K. Chesterton's novel from 1908, The Man Who Was Thursday, um, about a, an, an anarchist terrorist group, uh, where it turns out at the end of the novel that all seven members um, of the anarchist general council, uh, though they didn't know it themselves, were all working for the police at the same time. Um, <laughs> And there's a great quotation which I'll use where one of them, with some lament at the end, they all realize then finally that they're all policemen. And what, there, never was any, there never was any supreme anarchist council, he said. We were all a lot of silly policemen looking at each other. We are all spies. Um, I've been tempted because it, the IRA Army Council also has seven members on it. And some accounts of what happened to the IRA suggested that there might be a similar pattern happening there. Um, which I, I, actually, since I'm being filmed, I shouldn't suggest that. But uh, there's... Um, <laughs> It might be still a dangerous thing to say. I'd like to say for the camera, I don't think that's true. I think that's true. <laughs> but the, the novel does, amongst other things, demonstrate the longevity not only of the problem, um, and indeed if you read, another point I make in the book is if you read early 20th century literature, you find that an awful lot of the things which are treated in much of the post-9-11 literature on terrorism as if it's new, you know, the threat of jihad being a, an incomprehensible threat to civilization is actually there in the novels of John Buchan early 20th century. Um, though I wouldn't advocate reading the novels of John Buchan. I did myself for various reasons, but read the Chesterton. If intelligence is one vital arena of counter-terrorism conflict, then the legal realm clearly is another. And following the September 2001 attacks on America, many countries have introduced new anti-terrorism legislation, greatly expanding the respective authorities' powers for dealing with suspects, and at times, I think, transgressing legal boundaries in the fight versus terrorism. But my fifth point is that the best response here to the terrorist problem is this. Respect orthodox legal frameworks and adhere to the democratically established rule of law. Respect orthodox legal frameworks and adhere to the democratically established rule of law. Staying within the law significantly maintains that important Weberian distinction between legitimate state and illegitimate terrorist opponent. And to transgress over the line which legitimizes you as the state is to risk undermining that on which your own power ultimately, and in my view, rightly rests. Historically, there have been many examples of this problem. Here I'll again draw on some Irish examples in terms of the Northern Ireland troubles of the late 20th century. The legacy of the comparatively few shoot-to-kill controversies is one which was largely damaging to the UK authorities in Northern Ireland, as was the long-term damage done by boundary-stepping British Army activity in early 1970s Ulster. But a more sharp example, I think, is, and this is one which I think really does get to the heart of, of the issue in terms of, of the law, is to take the examples of the 1974 IRA Birmingham and Guildford bombings. In October 1974, bombs in Guildford killed five and injured um, very many more, actually bombs without warning. Uh, in, in November 1974, Birmingham bombs killed 21 people. Again, either no warning or warning so vague as to be useless. Now famously, and it's rightly famous, the people who were subsequently convicted of those crimes were wrongly convicted. The Birmingham Six and the Guildford Four um, had confessions, you know, in some cases, beaten out of them and threatened out of them. And it was a disgraceful episode. And quite rightly, it's a famous set of miscarriages of justice because it involves you know, a hideous wrongdoing to people who are innocent of appalling crimes and who should not have been put in prison. But the point I'm making here, I mean that's one point which I'd like to make, the point I'm making here is about the way in which states effectively or ineffectively respond to terrorist violence. Now one of the great resources you have in dealing with terrorist violence as the state is the very horror of the terrorist violence 
and recognizing and people, getting people to remember the horror of what's going on. But what happened in this case, as well as beating confessions out of people and putting the wrong people in jail, being wrong in itself, it was also a terrible own goal in terms of fighting terrorism. If you say Guildford now, insofar as it has any resonance, people remember the wrongful imprisonment of Irish people by the British state rather than the bombs themselves. And if you want a test of that, I suspect that even in a room as learned as this, the names of the Guildford Four, the people who were wrongly convicted, would be far, far better known than the names of the actual Guildford Four who planted the bombs. There's no mystery about who they were. I mean, if you want to look at the names, they're in my earlier book on the IRA. But I, I suspect that even in a room as learned as this, far fewer people would be able to name the Guildford Four who actually were the Guildford Four rather than the Guildford Four who were wrongly convicted. And that's a tremendous boost to the IRA. Even worse, virtually no one, I suspect, would be able to name any of the five people who ki were killed in the, in the bombing. So what I think in those instances, if you're talking tactically, is that what people should remember is victim, bomber, okay, rather than remembering the other way around, person wrongfully convicted by the state, which makes the IRA's case seem more legitimate, vaguely remember the IRA did it, but don't bother to find out who, and completely forget the victims. In other words, there's, a, there's a, a harmony in this case, I think, between what seems morally appealing, that you remember the atrocity, and you remember the horror which is done to the victims, and you should avoid trying to stick people in jail for things they haven't done. There's a harmony of that with the efficacy of response in trying to undermine the people who are putting bombs in pubs and blowing people up. I think there's another point which a professor at this university, Professor Conor Geerty, has has very eloquently outlined in terms of the relation between civil liberties and the fight on terrorism, which, which is a part of this too. In other words, that just as in my book I've argued that terrorism is part of, inextricably linked to broader political problems, realities, tensions, and so on, so too civil liberties, in Geerty's argument, is in a matter inextricably linked to the question of political freedom and democratic culture. And therefore, it seems to me not only tactically important to undermine terrorism by adhering to the proper processes for the law because it's a perfectly effective way of dealing with it and more effective. And indeed, if you look at the statistics, there is a strong statistical correlation between countries that deny civil liberties and political freedoms and countries that produce large numbers of terrorists. Okay, there's not a statistically strong correlation between lack of education or poverty and terrorism. There is a strong correlation between lack of civil liberties and terrorism. But it also seems to me that it's an essential part of what we think we're defending within a liberal democratic state to recognize that point about remaining within the law. And I don't think it's the case that rushed legislation amid terrorist crises has been sufficiently effective in augmenting our response to terrorism to offset the damage that's done both to the culture that we represent and to the reputation of it. And I think this has been true after 2001 in relation to the war on terror, just as it was true in the 1970s in the response to Northern Ireland. Now, this lesson has now been learnt in Washington and even in CENTCOM, but it's a lesson we should have learned already a long time ago. And my prediction, regrettably, is that if there's a bomb in Chicago tonight, it's a lesson that'll be forgotten tomorrow. Okay, so, I mean, this, this is a book, I think this book contains lots of wisdom and you should buy it and read it, but I'm not confident it's going to make any difference to the, the sort of response to crisis because there is a repetitive pattern here. I mean, significantly, since I, since I wrote and submitted this book, uh, Laura, Dor Laura Donoghue's very fine book on the cost of counterterrorism published last year, um, a very balanced in evaluation of the degree to which extending legal powers makes a positive or negative difference. I think it's a very balanced account and argues, in fact, uh, gratifyingly for me, for a very strong culture of restraint in the expansion of powers. And I think that's right. 
I mean, it's very difficult. One of the many reasons I'd be a hopeless politician is that you don't get elected by responding to a terrorist crisis by saying we need to respond gently here. We need restraint. We need to sort of find out ways of corrupting people and get intelligence and fight the long war. What you do is you, you send in the troops, extend the legislation, say we'll extirpate it, and that's what gets you elected. And I know that's true. I know that's true. Okay. But I think that it's unfortunately damaging for the rest of us, although it's electorally valuable to some. So I think there's a moral and an effective argument a coinciding of the moral and the effective in terms of staying within the law. Sixth, I think there's also a very practical point about coordination. Coordinate security-related, security financial, and technological preventative measures, and coordinate the different wings of the state that deal with terrorism and the different states which are allied in fighting that battle. If someone wants a probably people are now fed up with studying the Northern Ireland conflict and perhaps that's right but if people want a good PhD topic on the Northern Ireland uh, problem uh, and, and a great source of data I would strongly advocate looking at the website of the Billy Wright inquiry, an inquiry, public inquiry into the murder of a loyalist leader by Republicans in 1997 in the Mays prison and being the era that we're in, when you, when you give evidence at the inquiry and when things it's immediately put on a transcript and put on the web and it's just this fantastic unveiling of what happened in this episode. It rather, I mean, I don't think there's actually that much doubt what happened in the episode but for your purposes, if you're studying it what's really interesting is that there's a lot of evidence given, often anonymously, but by people who are identified by their job, by people who worked in the special branch, by people who worked in MI5, by people who worked running different kinds of agents. And you do find an almost Chestertonian case where people are different wings of the same state, are running agents at the same time, getting the same kind of information from the same microgroup and not talking to each other about it. Okay. And when the report comes out in the summer, I suspect... I suspect that this will be one of the things which emerges. But it's a really interesting unveiling of it. And you have the data all there, because these people are interviewed for day after day and grilled about it. And the lack of coordination between different wings of the state in dealing with the same problem is, of course, humanly predictable. It's like the lack of coordination within a university between the sociology department and the history department. Okay? They basically hate each other. They're going for the same resources. They've lived too long close in the same building to like each other, and they're therefore rivalrous rather than coordinated. It's a problem anyone who works in a university knows and recognizes very, you know, perhaps at a more, a less, a less significant level, I think, than, than fighting terrorism, but you know, more significant than me on a daily basis. Um, but it's one of those things which undoubtedly makes a huge difference in terms of effectiveness. Undoubtedly makes a huge difference in terms of effectiveness. And if you do study the ways in which different wings of the state operate, and also the ways in which different states ostensibly fighting the same war fail to pay attention to uh, harmonious and conciliatory relations. I mean, I think here, probably the former president, President Bush, uh, that, that era is one where that era is one in which uh, th there was far too little attention to keeping on side certain key uh, allies who could coordinate the fight. I think that, that has begun to change significantly under the, current, under the current president. Now, I'm not suggesting that if you coordinate the various different wings of the state, if you coordinate the financial and the intelligence and so on, you will make a, a difference such that you can stop terrorist attacks. Clearly, if you harden one set of targets, other targets become more the targets of choice. Uh, clearly, there are problems also in, in, in security measures. I mean, there's a 
a book that I didn't particularly like, Martin Amos's Collective Thoughts on Terrorism, but it has one great line in it about the, he's talking, <laughs> talking about Logan Airport and about the long security way, which I take personally myself because I've often gone through these ways. You wait for hours and hours getting the internal body searches, you go through the airport, and someone asks you, are you doing it? And you think, do I look like a jihadist and all the rest? You go through those sort of things. And Amos writes about these security checks and the increases in them. He says, whatever else terrorism has achieved in the past few decades, it has certainly brought about a net increase in world boredom. I'm thinking of those long queues as you're waiting. I once made an unwise comment at Newark Airport where they had this machine as you went through, um, uh, you'll have all been through this, where you go through the sand in this machine and the clock goes around for a minute and it puffs air at you like the people in the, in the opticians to try and test if you have whatever on it. And it, was, it had some name like um, Securitas 2 uh, and there was a bloke with shades looking at you as you were going through it. And I had to queue for 45 minutes in the airport, get up at this thing and point this and puff there at me. I walked through and said you can go on. And, and, I, and I said to the bloke, did Securitas 1 not work then? And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I could just see Guantanamo beckoning and I sort of sprinted off. <laughs> But I, I do think the point about coordination is, a, is absolutely vital because there are, of course, ways in which you won't stop all terrorist action, but coordinated activity can, can minimise it and can limit it. Similarly put another way, I think it's true that a lack of coordination can sometimes mean that uh, one part of your brain knows something, it doesn't tell the other part of your brain and you don't respond, and I think that, that, that's tragic. The final link in our chain of appropriate response is this. To maintain strong credibility in counter-terrorist public argument, to maintain strong credibility in counter-terrorist public argument. And here I think I would defend the fact that I've actually bothered to write a chapter on definition. I don't, don't find that off-putting, okay? It's, it, it's, it's an important point, not because it's of the arcane or abstruse matters involved in it, but because I think that honest and credible definition of what we mean by terrorism is an important part of this broader issue, which is credibility in terms of response to the terrorist problem. Uh, for example, it seems to me to be vital if, you're, if you ever are engaged, as some of you will have been in research with groups, that have, groups of communities that have given some support to terrorist violence, you recognise that the mantra that basically terrorism is what the non-state group that's against us does, it's not what we do, it, it is utterly implausible. I mean, from parts of Belfast to Helmand province to parts of Iraq to Gaza. To, you know, and I mean, I've had endless bits on tapes where I've interviewed people and they say, well, you know, they call us terrorists, but what about Dresden? They call us terrorists. What about the parish regiment? So, and that kind of antiphonal chanting of you're the terrorist, no I'm not, you are, no I'm not, you are, you started that. That is utterly futile. I think it's better to recognise that in fact what you should do is recognise that where terrorising violence is used for political effect, you can legitimately call it terrorism, but that actually the dynamics of state terrorism require to be addressed in a different kind of context from non-state terrorism. They're different enough phenomena in terms of what produces them to mean, you know, if you, if you add in a, all the stuff on state terrorism, the book becomes twice as long because so you have to deal with different literary debates. So I think you can discuss them in the literature in separate ways while recognising that both are terrorism, and it's an important point. Similarly, I think there are two key aspects of credibility which we need to address. One is credibility with the population that's instinctively sympathetic to you if you're the state, and one is credibility with the population that's potentially hostile to you and sympathetic to your terrorist <coughs> opponents. And I think in both of those cases, credibility is vital. And I think you do see credibility being lost in very many cases. Uh, Israel-Palestine is one clear example. Madrid, with regard to the Basques, would be another. And clearly the Northern Irish example is rich 
in both cases. I'll give you two examples, one of each, one with a community that's against the state and one with a community that's instinctively sympathetic. During the 1970s and early 1980s, famously, there was a battle in Northern Ireland about the status and designation of IRA prisoners in the jails. Were these people, as Mrs. Thatcher argued, criminal and therefore illegitimate, or were they political, as they claimed, and therefore have some whiff of legitimacy? And you had the sequence of you know, blanket protests leading to hunger strike, death of Bobby Sands, and, and, and a polarization, and within the nationalist community of the North, an undermining of the credibility of the British government, because the people in the nationalist community, most of whom actually did not sympathetically orient themselves to the IRA, most nationalists at the time did not support the IRA, but they knew that the bloke four doors down and was the son of their friend who was the IRA man was politically motivated. And if it was a choice between Mrs. Thatcher calling him a criminal while he's starving to death or him being political in his own eyes, you knew which way they were going to vote and they did in large numbers. People who would never vote Sinn Féin because of what the IRA were doing did vote in 1981 Sinn Féin for Bobby Sands because of that argument. And there was a perfectly alternative, credible way of doing it, which is to say yes, they're political, but not all politics is legitimate. Hitler was political. You could, it's, it's an obvious argument to make. It's perfectly credible. Similarly, I think the British made stumbling gestures at times with regard to the majority of people in Northern Ireland who are unionists. One of the great problems in the Northern Ireland peace process, and one of the reasons it's taken so long to become in some way consummated at the end, was the lack of trust that unionists had in their own government. That basically, unionists did not trust their own government. Now, like the IRA, unionists are also utterly rational people. They're as rational as anyone else. And the reason they didn't trust their own government was because quite frequently, their government lied to them. I remember interviewing the IRA's most famous opponent, the Reverend Ian Paisley, um, in 1994, at a time when there was argument about whether or not the British had been talking to the IRA. And the IRA said, yes, they've been talking to us. And the British said, no, we've not been talking to them. Yes, you have. No, we've not. Then Sinn Féin published documents which made it fairly clear that, in fact, they had been talking, as indeed it turned out they had. And Paisley said to me, People believe now the IRA version of their undercover talks with Britain has more truth in it than the UK version. Something that is very repugnant to me, as he put it in his stentorophonic fashion, but something which undoubtedly contributed towards a lack of trust on the part of unionists in their own government. Now, if you are going to resolve conflicts like this and deal with them, you need both to be credible with that population which might or might not support people who want to bomb you, and also to be credible with people whom you're going to bring along to some kind of reconciliation or conflict resolution or deal at the end of it. And in both of those cases in Northern Ireland, there was a missing of the point, I think, in ways that were damaging. Because in combating terrorism, there are all sorts of resources we have as states which give us perfect credibility and which enable people to win, I think, a public argument. There's a need to avoid spectacularly unpopular policies and interventions on your own part, but there's also a need to consolidate the fact that I mean, in line with the argument of my own book, for example, it's very frequently the case that while the problems which generate terrorist violence are serious and undoubtedly requiring some kind of resolution, the accompanying arguments of terrorist groups on closer inspection turn out to be deeply implausible in terms of what they're going to achieve, but in terms of whether what they would want to achieve was desirable anyway. I mean, anyone who's suffered through the... Uh, the writings of Saeed Qutb will know this to be the case in a painful way to their own cost. But it's also true in many cases, I mean, from Andreas Bader to the arguments of Etta. It seems to me that quite frequently taking on people in terms of clear, open argument about the credibility of analysis that they offer as opposed to the state offer is one that the state can be reasonably confident about as long as it's honest about what's really going on. And again, I think it's the case in, in the issue which is most of interest to people in the United States government, which is the question of Islamic-related terrorism. It seems to me that within the arguments about the relation between Islam and violence, uh, there is far greater 
theological credibility in those who condemn, for example, bin Laden or Zawahiri, than there is in terms of those bogus theological arguments offered by them. And in that sense, I think it's possible to argue that you can, you can put a credible case against terrorism with a confidence that that will work, but only if you rely on the kind of precision and honesty and credibility that I'm trying to advocate that we should. So in conclusion, I'm arguing that terrorism as a method will endure and the kind of response that I've adumbrated in this lecture is certainly not intended as a neat solution to the terrorist problem. Uh, I do think, though, that these interlinked points, integrated as they are with an honest approach to definition, explanation, and history, are ones which might provide a more appropriate basis for response than has been evident in recent years. Learn to live with it. Where possible, address underlying root problems and causes. Avoid the over-militarization of response. Recognize that intelligence is the most vital element in successful counterterrorism. Respect orthodox legal frameworks and adhere to the democratically established rule of law. Coordinate security-related financial and technological preventative measures and maintain strong credibility in counterterrorist argument. Now, all of these approaches to terrorism have been at least partially or initially ignored in the post-9-11 crisis on occasions I argue with disastrous results. My hope would be that in some small way uh, my book may make a contribution towards a debate which will allow us in future to respond more persuasively, shrewdly and effectively to the terrorist problem. Thank you very much. Richard for, for that. There are lots of um, points there I'm sure you'll agree. Uh, I'll allow people to, to slip out. We won't detain anybody without, um, well not for longer than 28 days. Anyway. Um, right. <coughs> Richard, would you like to take points and questions in groups or would you like to do it uh, one at a time? Instinctively one at a time. Okay. We're, we're going to take them one at a time. Has anybody got the first the first question. Okay, I am going to go to the gentleman at the front and then afterwards to the lady in the middle. But if we start at the, at the front, please. Um, hello, um, thank you for your speech. Um, I'd like to discuss where you were talking about uh, the less, choosing the lesser of two evils. Um, generally what's referred to as the ticking bomb scenario where you have someone being interviewed and there is a possibility of a bomb going off somewhere. Um, I would argue that the ticking bomb scenario is a, is a thought experiment that's very unlikely. Um, it makes several assumptions such as that there is a certainty that the interviewee is in possession of vital information. Whereas in many cases that might be someone who is you know, actually innocent and does not hold that kind of information and the chances are this person gives up answers that you want to hear and that the repercussions thereof, whether that is immoral pressure or actual torture, end up being counterproductive to counterterrorism and helps the terrorist cause. And I'd just, I just like to hear you respond on my arguments that this thought experiment doesn't translate to practical, you know, the real world. Thank you. Right, let's get the chestnuts, the old chestnuts out of the way first. I, I agree. I, 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 I totally agree with what you're saying. I mean, it's, um, I, I've always thought that that 
scenario, which is actually the one that Alan Dershowitz and others utilize, is one that, I mean, people normally say it's relevant to Hollywood but not to life. I don't even think it makes for good films, to be honest with you, because it's so implausible. I mean, it's just not a credible situation. Uh, the, the, the evidence is unambiguously on your side in that, broadly speaking, terror, torture does not tend to produce the kind of evidence that you want to have to counter terrorism, okay, for various of the reasons that you've outlined and other ones. I mean, it's quite clear that, you know, if I torture you long enough, you'll tell me pretty much anything, okay, including making up stuff, including confessing to things that you've not done. The counterproductive, not only is that useless in fighting terrorism, it's worse than useless because then someone who might have a, a, a hideous mode of operation and claims that I'm an oppressor will say, well, Larry, I told you they're an oppressor because they torture people like this man. So, no, I think it's utterly counterproductive. I think it's, it's, it's unlikely to be of any relevance at all. I mean, also, I think there are other reasons. I mean, the, there are the reasons in terms of combating terrorism for avoiding that kind of operation, you know, pulling someone's fingernails out to find something. I think there are other reasons in terms of what we think we're doing as a society anyway, uh, which, which should get in the way of it. So I, I would utterly agree with what you said here. And the, late, the lady over there. Thanks very much. Um, so having uh, dispensed with poverty and education, I was wondering if you could give a couple of examples of root causes or problems that you think it is possible to address, uh, particularly with respect to the kind of terrorism that grabs headlines today. I mean, the most significant one in my view is, is one on which in a different book I tried to, to deal, which is the question of nationalism and legitimacy. And it seems to me very often what happens in conflicts which rightly are categorized as having some terrorist violence in them is that if you see them purely through the lens of terrorism, you miss the fact that there are also conflicts about national legitimacy. I mean, clearly that's the issue in Spain. In a different way, it's the issue in Israel-Palestine. I think it's increasingly becoming the issue in parts of Iraq. Uh, it certainly was the case in Northern Ireland. It's the case in Chechnya. It's been the I mean, I think the issue of, of national legitimacy is an issue. But I think, put another way, legitimate government is significant. I mean, again, if you look at the new literature on Afghanistan now by the American military's um, footnoted classes, they tend to argue this as well, that actually what you really need is a legitimate indigenous government and police force who can deal with the problems. I don't really recognize that. The difficulty is by the time they've got to that recognition, it's become, I think, uh, very much more difficult to deal with it because of some of the things that have happened. So I, if you want to pick one, I'd say the issue of the, now this is not easy to resolve, I mean, as we know from the, the 19th and 20th centuries, this is not an easy one to resolve because those cases where you turn to self-determination as the key to unlock the door tend to be those cases where because you need to talk about them, you can't agree on the self to do the determining. And I mean, clearly that's an issue, it's an issue in various parts of the world. But I do think that's probably the most significant one, which I think we should address. I mean, I also think tied in with that, and it's not entirely coterminous with it, is the issue of um, a foreign military occupation of territory. Um, I mean, someone after, when my IRA book came out in 2003, someone rang me up from a think tank and said, you know, are there any lessons from Britain in Northern Ireland to what's going to happen in the invasion of Iraq? And I said, well, I don't think you can export lessons neatly, but here's a few. I mean, if you, if you use soldiers for policing duties in a situation when they can't conceivably know who's who, where they're going to have horrible things done at them or aimed at them, and they're likely, therefore, to round up people, some of whom will be innocent, and beat them to pieces, because that's what they're emotionally going to do, you're going to have problems, and the phone went down. Yeah, but actually, I was right about that. So I, mean, I think there are certain things about, generally speaking, I mean, I'm that kind of person anyway, but I, I generally avoid military occupation if you can possibly do it. In the case of the, I mean, I think in the case of Afghanistan and Iraq, I would separate them out. I, mean, I think probably the case for engagement in Afghanistan in some way that involved 
toppling the Taliban and so on was significant and credible. One of the things which actually when you talk to people in the American military comes out again and again is that I'm right on this point, which is that the job in Afghanistan was made much more difficult because of the diversion to deal with Iraq. Now, there were all sorts of reasons for going into Iraq, but actually tackling terrorism wasn't a good one. Okay. And in terms of tackling terrorism, Afghanistan and Pakistan were really, really important, but it was much more difficult because many of the people who knew what they were doing were diverted from Helmand to Baghdad, and that made it much more difficult. And we've got bigger problems there. Hi. Um, how do you suggest that the approach that states take to um, fighting uh, the type of terrorism perpetrated by IRA differ to uh, fighting terrorism perpetrated by Islamic terrorists? And uh, do you believe that Islamic terrorism is um, perhaps more intractable because of its uh, religious grounding? than maybe the uh, terrorism perpetrated by the IRA. Thank you very much. Um, another good question. I, mean, I think there are two things I'd say briefly. One is, one is to do with sheer practicalities, and the other is to do with perhaps what you're more interested in in terms of the ideological complexion or the religious ideological complexion. The practical thing is it's much, much more difficult to police against people who don't want to get out alive and don't mind killing lots of civilians. Now, broadly speaking, though they killed a lot of civilians, broadly speaking, the IRA thought it was bad PR to kill too many civilians, and broadly speaking, they wanted to get out alive if they could. Okay, if you take those two rules out, it's much more difficult to police against. So there's a practical difference. Um, and the second thing is, I, yes, I, I, mean, I would argue that each terrorist group you're looking at, you should explain within its own context. What I'm trying to do is, is look at those things where I think there are sufficient family resemblances of response to mean you can look at it synoptically, but I think they should be treated differently. Th there is a different kind of engagement between, for example, the religion and the politics with some Islamic groups than there was with the IRA, though in both cases I think something similar happened to this degree, that it was a, there was a religious component to a problem which related to a whole interwoven set of issues to do with, you know, in the Irish case, nationalism and uh, self-determination and a sense of deprivation economically and also a religious component. I mean, religion isn't, the Northern Irish conflict was not immune to religion, even though it wasn't primarily theological. But similarly, it seems to me that quite often we probably exaggerate the pure religious dimension to Islamic terrorism, and that quite frequently it seems to me that it's about things which, though they have a, re a religious inflection, are recognizably secular too in terms of power, identity, uh, marginalization, disaffection with regard to the state. So I think in that sense probably there's an, I mean understandably because of some of the rhetoric, and I think because it, in many cases people look at, from the West, at Islamic violence as exotic in some way, but I think I would I guard against that. I mean I think the interview would say many of the things that are being done would be entirely recognizable in terms of the sorts of decisions that people make in non Islamic situations with regard to dispossession, with regard to state legitimacy, with regard to questions of power, and as I said in, in response to an earlier question, with regard to questions of nation nationalism. Um, is it more intractable? Yes, it is, I mean, unquestionably. And even the one thing, I, I mean, if there was one thing you could, if there was one thing you could solve, I mean, if, if the Methodist God could come down and say to me, yes, here you are, you know, there's a chance to solve one problem, the one you'd go for is obviously Israel Palestine, because it's one which gives such fuel to so many other different things. Uh, the difficulty is that, of course, that's hugely difficult to solve in any way that I can predict them. I'm very bleak about the prospects in the Middle East. So it's intractable, even in the place where you say there's something where you've got a long-standing problem which you could gain hugely from solving, it's very difficult to solve. And there are some, there are some people you simply can't deal with. I mean, there's a nice line in Michael Burley's book on, on terrorism where he says, um, he says, 
if, if you think that Osama bin Laden will turn into, if you think Osama bin Laden will turn into um, Nelson Mandela, you need a psychiatrist, not a historian. I mean, I think there's a, there's a, not everybody is going to be someone with whom you can do a deal. I do think, though, in, what I would say is two things. One is, in very many cases, you can do a deal at certain points. And secondly, I think that the vast majority of people who support and sympathize with terrorist violence are open to exactly the same arguments of rational persuasion as anyone else. And although that initially seems disconcerting, because awful things are done by normal people, it's actually a resource for us. Can, can I intervene with a point before I before I go to the lady? I will. Go, I'll give the I'll give the ladies with the mics time to get to her and just intervene with with a point of my own. Um, there were two two points you made at different at different stages in your lecture, um, both that, that that made a lot of sense. But but I'm interested in the potential tension between them. And early on, you created Dershowitz, and I think there was a lot of sympathy for your position that's kind of counter to Dershowitz. That you, know, you talk to the bad guys and you legitimised bad behaviour. Um, and instinctively, a lot of people felt, well, you can't just have this sort of blanket disengagement and you'll, you'll, you'll ignore many of the possible mechanisms that, you, that, that might help with what you're considering to be a, a productive approach. But on the other hand, later, you quite rightly talked about the importance of having credibility with both, with, with both sides of the population, those that are with you, those that are instinctively sceptical. And I suppose that there is this tension, isn't there? Because there will be people who say the provocative, bad, unlawful, murderous behaviour is getting people to the table whilst we others who are pursuing our, um, our similar political objectives, perhaps by more democratic means, are, are, not, getting, are not getting the engagement in the, you know, the, the, the meetings and so on. And, and, and so, so how do you attempt to square that circle? Yeah, it's a very good point too. I, 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 and it's something which, again, you've seen in Northern Ireland with the effective erosion of the middle ground political parties so that the parties that actually won the moderate argument lost the electoral battle, and I think they were, to some degree, unfortunately, <laughs> al allowed to do so. Um, what, what I would argue is that is, is two things, Sammy. One, one is that I think that there is a, there is a corruption of democratic process engaged in drawing people who've had hideous CVs into power. I mean, there's no doubt that within Northern Ireland, um, you know, if you look at the two most famous Sinn Féiners and look at their CV, it's got an awful lot of blood on it, none of it justified in my view, and that's an appalling thing. But it's also true that it seems to me that the Northern Ireland of 2009, as opposed to the Northern Ireland of 1979, seems to me to be so much better that that compromise and corruption is, is, worth, is worth doing. I think the second point is that I think probably, though there are many good things in the Northern Ireland peace process, one bad thing in the Northern Ireland peace process was the allowing of the non-violent parties somehow to be sacrificed at the electoral altar of, of one particularly violent party. And I think probably more could have been done to sustain them. Uh, and I think that there probably, I, I suspect, for example, there, were, there was a harder line which could have been taken at some moments about the non-use of violence or about decommissioning earlier, which would have given greater credibility to the process for non-violent people, uh, non-violent parties, and I think that would have been helpful. It's a problem for which there's no obvious resolution, but I think if there is a choice between saying, um, if, if we think we can seize a moment when we might turn a, broadly speaking, violent conflict to something which is pretty much turned off, probably that price is one we, we should pay. But what you'll end up with is what I, I, mean, I recently on a radio interview I referred to it as a tainted peace, and that's, I think, what we have. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, Jerry Adams claims that he was never in the IRA. Actually, he was. I mean, between 1971 and 1973, he was the most important person in the Belfast Brigade of the IRA. And during that two-year period between 1971 and 1973, the Belfast IRA killed 211 people. Okay. 
but the, the lesson I would draw from this, well, not a lesson, the thing I think is also happening in other cases is the best deal you'll often get is that you put into power or sustain in power some people whose CVs and politics you don't like, but with whom, for various reasons, you do a deal which means they no longer bomb you. Uh, now, that's an ugly result, but it's a less ugly result than where you are when they're bombing you. I mean, if you think 30 years ago with the murder of you know, 22 people on the one day in August 1979, the day Mountbatten was murdered, compared to 30 years on in August 2009, you know, I, I know which I'd prefer. And if that means you've got, I mean, I opened this book with the image of Martin McGuinness and Jerry Adams skateboarding with Blair's children in 10 Downing Street, which is ironic given what they used to try and do to the inhabitants of 10 Downing Street. But it seems to me that that shift is one which is important. Now, I don't think that what, what that means is you say, oh, well, the terrorist of today becomes the statesperson of tomorrow. I mean, that list that people always used to give of saying, you call them a terrorist, but it'll become statespeople, that list always included Robert Mugabe, which nicely <laughs> makes the point I would make, which is that you know, just because you become a statesperson doesn't mean you weren't a terrorist or even that you give up being a terrorist or that you're the best person to be in politics. But it does seem to me that on some occasions you can shift people from one kind of career to another, and if that means a minimizing of human suffering, then the corruption that you refer to is probably worth enduring. Um, you've mentioned the Spanish terrorist group several times during your lecture. I was just wondering if um, if you see a peaceful solution to the issue? Yes, <laughs> I do. No. I mean, I, yeah, I do, because I think that the key Any moment... Any action it, plans? Sorry? Any action plans? Well, I think, I mean, I think the, the key point there is I think, I think that it's fairly clear that ETA, um, the most important group we're talking about here, ETA has recognized that uh, it's clear that the leadership of ETA has recognized that the violence they're engaging in is not going to bring victory. And I think it's the case, though I'm open to contradiction on this, I think it's the case that they realize that the violence they're engaging in is increasingly based on eroding support within their natural, which now very autonomous area of, of the country. Um, so I think there, I mean, what I would say is that actually the lessons which I'm trying to draw for a broad response there in terms of credibility, in terms of intelligence, in terms of staying within the law, in terms of not doing something counterproductive are things which are helpful. I, I mean, it's, it's a minor part of the Madrid atrocity, this, but you remember in the wake of the Madrid atrocity when the immediate response was, it's ETA, you know, uh, the, 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 the Madrid bombings. I mean, that doesn't probably help. You know, trying to make capital out of those things, that's a comparatively minor point. But I think probably adherence to those sorts of points that I'm making uh, is, is more relevant to that Basque case than it is to many others, because I think there is a chance of a sort of, not a mimetic imitation of Northern Ireland, but some end result which is probably broadly similar, in that I think you'll get on the margins the ongoing violence of some separatists who think it's appropriate to bomb a tourist resort or kill a police officer. But I don't think that will gain the day as the kind of vector of historical change in the Basque country. I think that's probably a moment that's dying out. And I think, therefore, broadly speaking, the, and again, we're back to legitimacy. I think the legitimacy of Basque aspiration being fulfilled within a, a more loose arrangement is one that probably will satisfy sufficient people to erode the momentum for the Basque separatist violent case. It's been pointed out to me by a wholly non-violent but nonetheless effective means that I've ignored the, um, the gallery. So um, where is the lady? There's a lady over there, and then we're going to go to the lady over there. And I will call men if they put their hands up as well. Hi, um, thanks for your talk, first of all. Um, I'm just sort of going back to the previous point that you made, um, and you know, you're sort of saying about Mugabe and the ANC being a sort of classic case of terrorism that becomes government. Um, but also with the case of Mario McGuinness and, and Ian Paisley ruling Northern Ireland at, um, at, at, at the end of the peace process. And I guess just what I wanted to ask you is, you know, you're talking about responses to terrorism. Um, and we also talk about having to make that compromise um, when it comes to saving lives at the end of the day. But um, 
he said also that terrorists are rational human beings and, and in my own experience the, the, the high up people tend to be highly educated rational human beings so how do you in, in terms of preventing terrorism so we don't have to get the response stage how do we create the conditions whereby um, in, in, in the, in the pre-terrorist pre-violent stages um, people are convinced that non-violent means can work when they look at the examples of ex-terrorist groups who have achieved, achieved their aims and you mentioned Sri Lanka and if you look at the treatment of, of the Tamil in, in Sri Lanka and how you know eventually violence was, was the only means that they saw um, so how, yeah that's my question Just how, how do we get that balance right between a pragmatic um, focus on the present violence and sort of, you know, messages and, and setting examples of it Sure, thank you very much I, mean, I, I, I think one key component of it is something which I think we've probably got slightly wrong in Northern Ireland again, which is about this, that <coughs> whatever the IRA were fighting for in 1972, 82, it, it wasn't actually this. Okay. So yes, Martin McGuinness is a, a member of a government and an influential one. Actually, he's a member of a government within the United Kingdom. <laughs> you know, as some people cattily point out to him. But what's generally happened is in order to keep Sinn Féin involved in the process, the climb down from the IRA's goal of British withdrawal in the United Ireland to this, which is much less, has been kind of dignified by a restrained engagement with them. So that, for example, people tend not to keep saying, you know, Martin, when you were chief of staff of the IRA, how many people were killed? People keep not, don't keep saying, you know, you were fighting for this then, but now you've had to settle for that. Um, th th in other words, there's been a, almost a softening of the pointing out that the violence didn't produce what it was aimed to produce. I mean, if, you look, if you look at all three groups that were using brutal violence in 1972, which was the most violent year of the Troubles by far, 497 people were killed in Northern Ireland in 1972. If you look at the people who carried out the violence in that year, neither the loyalist paramilitaries nor the republican paramilitaries nor for that matter the parachute regiment got the outcome that they thought they were fighting for in 1972. It's a really big point. It's a really, really big point. Because I think that terrorism does change the world but rarely as its practitioners intend and anticipate that it will. I think that's a really, but what happened in Northern Ireland was that point was played down because people thought, don't, you know, don't keep pointing that out in public or they might sulk and go off. So there's, there's a danger there. I mean, put the other way, I mean, in terms of whatever the UDA and the UVF, the main loyalist groups, were killing people for in 1972, it wasn't to get Martin McGuinness to be deputy first minister. Okay. So I, th I think that point is one which, it, which, which I think that's a point which one is probably in public discourse shouldn't be overly stressed. But I think it's there, it should be there in the books because I think otherwise there's a danger of people thinking, you know, how do you get to fly business class and become a deputy prime minister? Well, you bomb people. And they, uh, actually, I suspect that if you, a better way of putting it is to say, let's look at what those groups were and actually setting out as their goals and the legitimation for their appalling violence and then see what they achieved. Now, there is a big debate, as you'll know, in the literature on this that does terrorism work literature. And I suspect, unlike, you know, terrorism, how to do it, I think the next book I write will be on does terrorism work, which I think is a really important topic. But my sense is most of the groups that I've looked at very closely are ones where the, vi the violence is either still ongoing and the goals haven't yet been achieved, or although things have been changed, the central objectives have not been realized at the point where the violence comes to an end. And I think that's a lesson which probably we, we don't make enough of. Um, I mean, it's also true that that's, that's often the case in conventional warfare, I should stress too, but I mean, I'm instinctively hostile to unnecessary brutality. But I mean, in terms of terrorism, I think that case could be made. And the other point I'd make is that um, uh, quite, quite often there's a 
How can I put it? Quite often it is the case that people who had once been involved in anti-state terrorism end up being involved in constitutional or positions of political power. I really would stress that doesn't necessarily mean they were the best people to do so. Um, I mean, I, I think that's the point. I mean, it, you know, Mandela is unquestionably a great man, okay? But I think most of the other people that you engage in that list have a much more ambiguous contribution to world civilization. And I think that's one which we need to recognize. And, and so I, I think there's one, one point I think here, I mean, I was very struck by the, the brilliant David Layton in his book, Nation, States, and Violence, points out that <coughs> while we always study those places, for example, where there's ethnic or national coexistence, which turns out to be violent, we always study those ones. The overwhelming case in terms of ethnic coexistence of different groups around the world is peaceful. Okay. And I think, therefore, there's something where I think what we need to do is explain where it goes wrong and oftentimes it seems to me that at the very least the cost of the change that has been made is so heavy that I doubt that we should judge it worth the pain. We're running out of time, but I, I, there's a lady there who's waiting. Yeah. Um, my question is regarding Britain's response to homegrown terrorism. Um, which I think has followed a lot of the seven, or at least attempted to follow a lot of the seven points that you've made on how to respond to terrorism. Um, there's been £45 million put aside to put into programs that are, you know, for example, the Young Muslim Leaders Initiative, um, sending people into Islamic societies, into universities. Now, I guess my question is, to what extent do you think that has been successful? And to what extent do you think it's actually alienated um, a large number of the Muslim community unnecessarily. Uh, there's this assumption that every Muslim in Britain is prone to being a terrorist. <laughs> obviously, we disagree with that, but to what extent has their method been successful? Yeah, I mean, obviously, that's not an, not an assumption that I, I, I would share. I mean, I, I, mean, I, think, um, I think what's happened is that it's a really important issue because the homegrown terrorist thing really struck at the heart of what the government thought had been happening in Britain. And, and it tags on, I think, to the, the issue of, you know, what is Britishness and new Britishness and, 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 and so forth. And it really hit them. You know, the sort of the bomber with the Yorkshire accent really was a big resonant moment, okay? And I think what they've done is in many ways, it's certainly in many cases well-intentioned. Um, I suspect that the, the single biggest variable in terms of generating 7-7 seven, seven time violence is actually something which relates to, to a a perception of British foreign policy. I mean, you know, the head of MI5 at the time pointed out that they, their interpretation of it certainly was that a, a, a strong, if not the strongest, motivation behind that kind of uh, revanchist anger was a perception that British foreign, UK foreign policy was, was anti-Muslim. So I think probably in that sense, you can put as much money as you want into trying, trying to be nice in Bradford, but if, if people perceive that, you know, then those people are going to be disaffected, will be. And the other thing is, I mean, one of the points I try to make in the book is this, that, and this, this is something where there are examples from lots of different cases, and I think actually that Mohammed Atta, the um, you know, town planner turned 9-11 um, villain, um, is a case in point, that it seems to me that Often at an individual level, there's a, an ambiguity in people's biography between um, the, I don't think the clash of civilizations argument is plausible as Huntington espoused it. I do think at an individual level, there's a tension between certain kinds of identity, which sometimes works it out, itself out in zealotry. I don't think there's much you can do about that. I really don't. I think the programs won't make much difference to that. I think what you can do is try and, I mean, the point I think of my seven, which is most relevant here, is the point about credibility. I mean, I think it's absolutely important to stress that if you do believe that the UK is a state which believes that people of various different 
religions or none, ethnicities or none, uh, political orientations are part of the community and welcomed and valued as such, then you know, I'd like to hear it even more often and more sincerely from, for example, the incoming government for next year. I think it's going to be important there. But I, I think the difficulty is that there will always be the possibility of things on the margins happening with a very, I mean, a very small number of people can, can change the world in this way. And the difficulty is that in, in the wake of, let's say, for example, if there's another attack on the London transport system and it's someone with a Bradford accent, okay, then I think what will happen again is that there'll be a, a response by many voters to think, what a, what a terrible thing multiculturalism is, what a dreadful thing Islam is, I hate all this stuff. And then there'll be people who think, well, if I'm going to get elected in my constituency, I can't come out and say the sorts of things that you know, a liberal tweed-suited fellow like me is saying, because it won't get you elected. Okay, so I think there is, there is a danger there. So I, my, my answer is, really make it, I think much of it has been benignly intended. I think some of it might have done some good. I, mean, I think they'd be better off concentrating on two things, which is one, thinking about whether or not the effects of their foreign policy are, uh, are the real thing. And second, I think, I think also the civil liberties thing is absolutely vital here. I mean, if they're, they're not parallel examples, but there is, a, there is a, an echo here between the way in which the Irish community was treated in the wake of IRA bombs in the 70s in Britain and the way in which some Islamic communities have been treated in the wake of atrocities in London, for example. And I think that's absolutely decisive. And you, 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 at those moments, you do have, you're a fork in the road as a state. You either get it right or you get it wrong. And I, my instinct is probably it's 60-40 in favour of them getting it wrong. If I, if I could just chip in briefly. I'm, I've been doing pretty well as a restrained chair. You've been very restrained. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm known for my restraint, particularly on this subject. Of course. But, but, um, the one thing that came to my mind when you, you were talking about in the individual and the potential personal tensions between different aspects of your identity, I personally think that one of the mistakes that um, the Blair government made was to be really, really um, obsessed with mono-identity or wanting people to choose one identity above all others. I mean, identity cards started out being a bit like that. And actually, I think we're all, as human beings, creatures of, to some extent or other, multiple identity. And that's, 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 whether that's good or not, that's real, and that's who we are. So you and I are both women. I can see immediately that's something we have in common. But if we spoke in person for more than five minutes, we would find other things that we have in common and other things that we don't. You know. Um, Richard and I have in common that we're probably roughly the same age and we have an interest in this subject and, and, and I think what government sometimes does is that it, it forces us to choose one club above all others and suggests that you can't be in more than one club at the same time and then these personal tensions that probably do exist for all of us at times become heightened at just the moment when if you like the prescribed or terrorist organisation wants that tension to be to, to be heightened as well. There's a gentleman in a blazer and specs. Is that um, would you argue that it is the net amount of terrorism or the, the motivation and level of, uh, of terrorism has actually increased, or is it just the intensity and the um, uh, the brutality behind it? And if you can argue for either of those, um, has it increased due to the actual uh, the, the counterproductive initiatives that you described, or is it just part of our time that you know terrorism, terrorism increases and uh, and that we see an inflated value of of, of, of death toll? Thanks very much. I, mean, I, <clears throat> I think one aspect of it is that there have been certain, there's been the adoption of certain more successful methods of killing large numbers of people. 
Um, so I think you know one of the one of the effects of hardening some targets is that alternative targets have been chosen, some of which are very bloody in terms of civilians in crowded places, and that's one feature of it. I think another thing, more importantly, is that yes, I do think that there is... Now, I'm not saying that it was wrong to invade Afghanistan or invade Iraq, um, though I have certainly strong doubts about the latter. What I can say is that there is no doubt that those policies have, both in terms of those countries themselves and in terms of the effect in other situations, magnified what you refer to as the intensity or deepened the intensity of anger on certain questions. So there's no doubt that that has been a response. Now, people may decide that it's a price worth paying. And those people may say, well, actually, the benefits of the Iraq adventure are such that if it means you get more people being rage-filled and trying to blow you up in the Iraq for a time and elsewhere, it's worth paying. And that's not my own view, but there is a case that could legitimately be made there. The other thing I'd say is that although the numbers, I mean, the point I make about the numbers I stand by, because, I mean, I've looked at various different databases and the same picture emerges from all of them with, with some recalibration. It's also true that, of course, at the moment, terrorism as a killer is statistically quite small, I mean, globally. The, the chances of anyone in this room being killed by terrorism are very, very small. Okay. So in that sense, I, I don't, I'm not arguing that this is lethal on the scale that some other kinds of violence or some other kinds of threat would be. I think the two things I would say about that are, one, that even s small violence of the kind that we're discussing tonight provokes big changes, some of them hugely damaging in terms of the ways in which countries operate. State responses can be magnifying difficulties, and you can get large-scale violence by the state in response to that. So terrorism that's small can make a big, difficult, dangerous response. The other thing is, and I do discuss this in the book too, there is one kind of terrorism which would transform that point about the minimal levels and so on, which is, uh, I'm going to be very careful what I say on film here, but there, there is a, a conventional terrorist attack on a nuclear facility would, would dwarf anything that we've seen in terms of both terrorist fatalities and also state response. Um, and, and I do know that that is a serious possibility. I mean, thankfully, I think the groups are comparatively inchoate and ill-organized to do it, but it's not, you know, the skills that the people I interviewed for my IRA book could be used easily towards that goal and very effectively. And that would transform it. So, I mean, if I was talking, that's partly why I'm talking about coordination of practical response. I mean, we're no safer from that, that kind of attack now than we were on the 10th of September 2001. And that's a disgrace. That is a disgrace because this, this, would, change, this would change the 21st century. Okay. And I think that's a, it's a grim point to end on, but... Well, we won't end on that because I've, I've, I've agreed to take one final question from the lady um, with the specs that will give you the opportunity for an uplifting Upbeat. ending. Okay. Um, or, or, well, any ending that you want, of course. Um, and then we will move to the book signing. So if you've bought a book, you'll, you might get another quick question in on the way up the stairs. So, yes, please. Um, hi. Um, thanks again for your um, lecture. Um, I was wondering, at the very beginning, I mean, during the old speech, you mentioned um, these points that are... Um, actually kind of common to the various different type of terrorism. I think that one thing uh, that wasn't mentioned is that obviously um, the war on terrorism that we have been experiencing lately has a strong um, element um, that is referring to foreign policy and uh, economic interests. So I was wondering how do you think this issue uh, will impact the way we should respond to it, considering, for example, all the talkings uh, that was uh, uh, done uh, around the um, extradition of the Lockerbie uh, terrorist. Thank you. That, that's also a really good question. I mean, I think 
two points there and then I'll finish. I mean, the, the first point is the Lockerbie thing is really revealing insofar as, and this goes back to my point about Guildford, how extraordinarily expendable <coughs> victims and relatives are when other interests are at play. Okay, and not just economic interests there, but interests in terms of the Scottish as opposed to UK system. And, and it, it, victims get forgotten, and that's disgraceful. And I think that was the main lesson I took from the McGrath thing. The second point is that I mean, the economics and interest. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, it's a hugely important point because one of the great things about the T word is you can you can shout terrorism and then do something you want to do for totally other different reasons, uh, and, and people find it more difficult to argue with you because you're saying, well, we've got to do this because of terrorism. And also, I mean, as as people, I mean, people like Walter. To Mead have pointed out very sensibly that you know, there's always someone who has a good war. You know, if, you, if, if, if you're at war in a way which uses up military helicopters and you therefore need to keep building new military helicopters and there's a factory making them in your area of the world and you get elected as a senator, are you going to want those people to be in jobs or not? Yes, you are. Are you going to be? Yeah, there's that. Um, people, if you're thinking about getting elected on a certain cycle of elections, you know, you're going to want the economy to be boosted. There's going to be a benefit from there. If you're looking at contracts for certain places of the world, you get. So economics is absolutely vital to it. My point, though, is that the economic damage that's done by some of these responses is also something we should take into account, not just the vast expense that's used, which in my own view would be better often used on other things, more ironic things, but also that I think that some of the regions to which you export your kind of counter-terrorism, you can have actually sometimes, in, in, in pursuit of economic self-interest for your state, you can have extraordinarily damaging effects, you know, environmental for that matter, but certainly economic on certain, some regions. And I think if it did come, I mean, back to my grim point again, but if it did come to an escalation of this where it became significantly more serious, <coughs> then I think those costs would be really, uh, would be clearer to, to, to us all. So, I mean, yes, I, I, I mean, I, I suppose I'm not saying on a grim note here, but a cynical one to some degree, that clearly politicians will think about aspects which are not really about terrorism, but about things that you can get from it. Okay, and if you, it is one of the great things you can shout. I mean, you know, if you want more resources, you shout terrorism, and people feel they have to give them to you. Um, if, if you want to legitimate various different things that you plan to do for a long time, and you can shout terrorism, if you can stick the T word on a problem which isn't really primarily about that, it gives you all sorts of maneuver and leverage. And I think that's 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 just part of the way that politics happens. And I fear that's not going to go away. The reason I no, I'll end on something hopeful. The reason I'm hopeful about it is that because Plan A, during the last few years, has to put it politely, stumbled. There is, there, there is an openness to something else. I mean, I find now that the attitude in the United States when I'm talking to people is significantly different now from the attitude that there was some years ago uh, when this looked rather eccentric as a kind of argument. And I, I don't think it looks eccentric. Now, there may be all sorts of flaws in it, but I mean, they don't, I don't think it's eccentric. I think people think, well, actually, plan A ain't worked, so maybe there's something in an alternative way. And if that also coincides with aspects that I think are the kind of moral aspects on which our societies are based, then I applaud that too. Thank you, Richard. Richard um, and, and friends, I just want to say that I've been working in and around this area for about a decade, um, but I think that your book and your lecture tonight and your whole approach to these issues is really quite special, and I'd like to thank you in particular for the calm, dispassionate logic of your argument, for, the, for, for really using historical and comparative analysis in, in, in such a valuable way, and for, and for opening up all those years of interviews and research to all of us in in such a in such a uh, 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 an accessible form, but but ultimately, in particular, for the calm, dispassionate logic, um, Richard. Thank you so much. Thank you.